0: Lord, as we were singing, I'm just so grateful that our feelings do not determine our standing with you. What we feel is not what is true. What is true is what your word says. And so I pray that as we come to your word, you would open it to us, give us understanding, cause us to see beyond the words and experience your presence. And Lord, we do thank you for these feelings of worship, feelings of gratitude. Thank you that we can bring our anxieties to you. And we do that. Lord, we ask you to speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. We're in a series and almost through with the book of Mark, but we're going to look at the first half of Mark 15. So if you would take a Bible, take your phone, whatever device you have, and go to Mark chapter 15. I heard a guy say one time that of all the world religions, Christianity is absolutely the oddest, the strangest. And if we don't feel that, it's because we have had centuries of familiarity uh, that kind of dulls the sense of, of how strange it is. Let me explain. Confucius died at age 72 or 73, surrounded by his friends, people who loved him, in fact, The family line of Confucius still continues today. The 80th generation, a guy was born in June of 2006 in Taipei. Buddha died at 80. Respected, loved, surrounded by friends and family who almost revered him. Muhammad died at age 63 in Medina with his head cradled in the lap Of Isha, the favorite of his 13 wives. So, Confucius, Buddha, Muhammad, all of them died as old men. All of them died prosperous, surrounded by friends and family. They were respected, they were loved. And then there's Jesus. After just three years of public ministry, at the age of 33, he's executed. He is not surrounded by friends. He is not surrounded by family. He is not surrounded by people who love him. He has been rejected and he is humiliated and ridiculed. People who are passing by throw slams and slurs at him. The wisest spiritual leaders of his time who should have known better not only rejected him but treated him uh, shamefully. Nearly every spiritual leader considered him a dangerous fool. So, he was killed in public in, a, in the most humiliating way possible. And what this means is that people who have never been exposed to Christianity around the world, this is what they find so surprising because it's so, it is so different. And lots of people today say, well, all religions are essentially the same. Maybe you kind of think that, or you know someone who thinks that, and I don't mean to be offensive at all, but if you think that, you just don't know what you're talking about you're more influenced by television and by media than by the truth. And what it reveals is you've never even done a superficial study of Christianity. Jesus did not die of old age like almost every other leader. He did not die prosperous. He did not have his best life now. He was not loved by one and all. He died alone, uh, ridiculed, rejected, executed as a criminal with criminals at both sides, rejected publicly by almost everyone because of who he was, who he claimed to be, and what he taught. And yet his death is the most famous death in all of history. No, no other death even comes close. How do you explain that the instrument of his death, a cross, which was developed by the Persians, And then perfected by the Romans to be the most torturous death, long lasting death dealing instrument. How do you explain that it is the most recognized symbol in the whole world? And not only recognized, how do you explain that the Christians chose the cross as their logo or their symbol instead of like the dove? you know, symbol of the Holy Spirit, or like loaves and fishes, uh, where Jesus multiplied them, or um, like a towel, where he came as a a servant. How do you explain that they chose a cross? And how do you explain that the most painful way you can kill someone is now a symbol of hope and love? How do you explain it's called the red cross? Symbol of mercy, of help. It's not always been that way. In fact, the earliest depiction of the cross that archaeologists have found was, was a graffiti on a wall. Go ahead and throw that picture up if you would. Graffiti on a wall in Rome that was put there about uh, about 200 A.D. and it pictures a, a, ma- a young man looking up at Jesus on the cross. And there is Jesus dying and he's got the head of a donkey. And in Latin, there is written there these words, he worships his God. So this, whoever this, he he is mocked and ridiculed and humiliating for worshiping a man who died on the cross. How do you explain there's so many people wear crosses on their ears or have tattoos of crosses or they hang them in their houses. You look at the skyline of many cities and you see crosses. How do you explain that? Just try hanging a hangman's noose in your home. I mean, it's kind of like the equivalent. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today and that's what we're going to talk about next week as we look at chapter 15. Why is the cross the central message of Christianity? Why do Christians believe that what happened on the cross and just days later in the resurrection are the central events of all of history? And why do we sing about an instrument of death like a hangman's noose or an electric chair? So before we look into Mark 15, let me, let me back us up a little bit to Passover. It's where Jesus has the Last Supper with the disciples. Passover is the event that commemorates the most, the defining moment in the history of Israel when God set slaves free who had lived in this miserable bondage for years. God sets them free, not because they're Jews, but because they take a lamb, kill it, and smear the blood on the front of their house, the doorframe, and they shelter behind the blood. And so the angel of judgment, the angel of death, passes them over when he sees the blood. So Jesus is celebrating that a thousand years after it took place with his disciples. And Judas leaves. They think he's going to give money to the poor or something. He's actually going to get a mob together. He's going to betray Jesus. And, and Jesus takes bread and wine and uses them to explain the fact that the wrath of God, the judgment of God on human sin is going to fall on him. And he says, that's why I never want you to forget this. So I want you to continue to do this. And after they finished Passover, they left the room and they're they're singing Passover songs, which are called the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 115 to 118. In 118, it says part of the Psalm says, This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And of course we can say that about today, but that originally meant the day that Jesus is dying. That's the day that the Lord has made. That's the day we rejoice in. So they're walking out and they Jesus is talking to them about abiding in, in him, chapters 14 through 17 of John, and they cross, they go down into a little valley called the Kidron Valley, and they walk up the hill, the Mount of Olives, to Jesus' favorite place, the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Gethsemane means olive press, and that is where Jesus is going to be pressed to within an inch of his life. Everybody knows that's his favorite place. And by the way, they're not alone because this is Passover, and people have come from all over the world to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. So there are people camping out all over the Mount of Olives. And Jesus takes his disciples and goes to a quiet place there in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you go there, there are olive trees that date back to 2,000 years. They were there when Jesus was, was there. And he takes three of his disciples and he is, he's going to open his heart up to God, and he is going to pour out his soul. And he wants some company And so he begins to pray and he's talked a lot about his death to the disciples. He's described it over and over, but now he tastes it. And when he sees what's actually going to happen, it shocks him. He is, it says, chapter 14 of Mark, he's distressed. That word means stunned, He's just amazed at what's going to take place. And he fights a battle. In fact, the pressure is so great that he begins to sweat blood. So the pressure is almost killing him. His heart can't take a whole lot more. And he finally fights his way to a breakthrough and he says, not my will, but yours be done. He goes back to the disciples and they're sleeping. I mean, it's been a long day. It's it's past midnight now. But on the other hand, these are fishermen and fishermen know where it is to fish all night. They stay up awake all night. They're just, but they're sleeping. So Jesus goes back and he prays again. And this time he talks about the cup. Father, take this cup from me. And in the Old Testament, the cup is a symbol. It's a metaphor of the wrath of God on sin. And he says, please take this from me. And once again, there's a breakthrough, not what I want, but what, what you want. He puts his desires. Into the hands of the father and goes back to the disciples, does this two other times. And at that moment, about one in the morning, um, they hear a noise and they see some lights of torches in the distance. And Judas leads a mob up to where Jesus is with with at least the three, perhaps the, the, the others, leads a mob. And Judas kisses him as a way of identifying in the dark people all over the Mount of Olives, where who who Jesus is. Why a kiss? You say, well, that's why men greet, greet one another. Yeah, but why a kiss? It's a kiss of death. And Peter, who's kind of waking up and rubbing his eyes, sees what's happened and grabs a sword and starts swinging it and cuts the ear off of one of the people standing there. He's actually the servant of the high priest, cuts his ear off. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Don't you think I could call seventy-two thousand angels to come get me and set me free? And then Jesus heals that man's ear. I don't think that man ever forgot that. Jesus put his ear back together, and he offers no resistance at all. And so they take him as a mob to the place where he will be tried. Jesus has two different trials. Actually, there breaks in different parts, but. They have a, he has a Jewish trial before what's called the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, 72 of them. And then he's going to have a Roman trial before Pilate. And the Jewish trial is because the Jews, the Sanhedrin did not have the right to exercise capital punishment, but they did have to bring charges. And so Jesus is there and they want to get something they can take to Pilate because Pilate couldn't care less about blasphemy some religious dispute and so they begin to bring in these witnesses false witnesses one after another and they can't even agree and Jesus just stands there in silence he doesn't need to say anything they're all lies this is to use a contemporary term this is all fake news he doesn't need to say anything at all and the, the high priest sees this thing beginning to come unraveled and so he's going to try the nuclear option and so look at chapter 14 verse 14, verse 60. The high priest stood up in the middle and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? He remained silent, made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? In other words, he's putting Jesus under oath. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And everyone in that room knows what he's talking about because they all know what Daniel 7 says. Go ahead and throw that scripture up on the screen if you would, please. Daniel 7, this is a claim to be God. This is a claim to be the coming judge of the whole world. Daniel 7, he says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And they understand what Jesus is saying is this. I'm coming back in the Shekinah glory of God and I'm going to judge the world. And I'm going to judge you. High priest and all the one being condemned is the one who will be the judge. And by the way, let me just kind of put a sidebar here and say that's still true. There is a judgment day coming, and every one of us will stand before God. And our sins will either be punished in hell forever by us, or they will have been placed on Jesus, and they were punished in him. Well, the high priest at this point, here's this, and loses it this is what he has wanted he has the charge he has waited for here it is he's claiming to be a king so he tears his robes in this expression of horror and then the trial becomes a a riot the judge and the jury begin spitting on and beating the accused beating him around mocking him laughing at him, and they've got the charge they need. So chapter 15, verse 1. By the way, Peter has been, he's followed, the, he and John have followed the crowd, that mob. They've gone into the courtyard of the, the high priest. John apparently knows the high priest. He gets in, gets Peter in, and Peter just crashes. He, he just wimps out before a little servant girl three different times Denies it with curses at knowing Christ. And with that last time, apparently they're leading Jesus out to go to Pilate's place. And Jesus locks eyes with Peter. And Peter just leaves, weeps bitterly because of what he has done. So chapter 15, verse 1. As soon as it was morning, the chief, and because they want to do it before people are out in the streets talking about this. This is, but as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus. This is kind of a little humor here. They're going to tie up someone who can walk on water, cast demons out. They bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. This is the, the, the Roman trial to take place. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You've said so. And he's not trying to be evasive. He's just trying to say, think about what you're saying. And, he, and, and the chief priest accused him of many things. Pilate does not want to do this. He, he's looking for a way to get out of this. So he delays action and Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? So many charges they bring against you. And Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was, was amazed. He doesn't want to do this. Oh, and then he pulls the trump card. He he remembers that a week before Jesus, and he's heard about this, Jesus has come into town riding a a, a donkey and uh, people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And Pilate thinks, the people love him. I'll do what traditionally is done. I'll give the people a choice. So verse six, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. And this is very interesting. In Hebrew, bar, bar, bar mitzvah means son, bar mitzvah, son of the covenant. If you've got Jewish friends at the age of 12, they go through bar mitzvahs, son of the covenant. Bar means son. Abbas, abba, means father. So this man's name means son of the father. And Origen, who was an early church leader, said that his first name was Jesus. So you've got Jesus, son of the father, who's a murderer, and you've got Jesus, son of the father, and he's the the, the healer. The, the Son of God. And they're both standing there. Okay, let's just keep reading. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And, they, and, and he answered them, do you, want to re- me for, to, do you want me to release for you the King of the Jews? For he pers-, and I think he said that out of spite for the Jewish leaders because they hated the fact that Jesus was said to be the King of the Jews. So Pilate's just egging them on you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas in, instead. So apparently what happened is these, uh, these Jewish leaders went around the crowd and the crowd going, you know, what we need is, is Barabbas. Jesus preached peace, forgive your enemies. Look where that has you. We need a strong man. We need a tough man. We need, we need Barabbas. Vote for Barabbas. So they stirred the people up. And Pilate again said to them, this is verse 12, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. The the crowd has just become a mob. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now when you read flogged or scourged Jesus, you think, well... Maybe they just kind of pushed him around a little. They tied him to a post. They stripped his shirt off of him. And they took a whip that was had the strands uh, embedded with pieces of glass, rock, pieces of bone. And they had no limit to the number of stripes they could give. And they began to, this is the scourging, began to beat him. And as they hit him... Of course, those bones and pieces of glass dug into the skin, and they would rip it away, pulling off the flesh from his back, literally leaving just a just gore, just a mass of, of back just ripped apart. And then they have some fun with Jesus. Verse 16, the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, about 600 men, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, the the color of royalty. And they twisted together a crown of thorns they put on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed. They they put a, a kind of stick, a thick stick in his hand as a scepter. Now they take it out, begin to hit him on the head, and kneeling down in homage to him, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe, put his own clothes on, and they led him out to crucify him. And the idea was... A man was condemned to be crucified, only the worst of the criminals, there, was, there were several Roman philosophers who said it's even humiliating to think about or talk about what happens on, on, a, on a cross. They led him to be crucified and they take the longest route through town. They t- today it's the Villa Dolorosa. And they, they, so everybody sees it. it's a warning to everybody, don't do anything against Rome and to humiliate him as well. And Jesus is so weak, he falls down can't carry that cross piece, maybe 40 pounds. And so they have to get someone else. Verse 21, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is located in the north of Africa. It's actually Libya. See, he may have been a, he was an African. He may have been a black man. He was there for Passover, who was coming from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus. These are two young men who are known in the early church later to carry his cross. So Jesus He's humiliated. He can't even carry his own cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the the skull. In Latin, it's Calvary. And maybe the hill was shaped like a skull. Maybe there were just sun bleached skulls laying all around. They call it the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, kind of an anesthetic. He did not take it. And they crucified him. And that's all Mark says about it. Mark does not, nor do the other gospel writers go into great detail like Mel Gibson, The Passion of the Christ, where you got blood and gore up close and personal, as much as you can stand. The New Testament writers do not go in great detail about the, the pain of the cross, the physical, and, and it, was, it was horrible. It was designed to keep a man alive as long as possible because those nails that they put into his wrist and his feet did not strike any artery. So he couldn't bleed to death. He he, he would hang on for days until his heart just gave out, until he couldn't breathe anymore. But they don't go into any detail at all about the horrible pain of the cross and what that was going to feel like. They just don't focus on that Jesus suffered, but so did the other two criminals that died beside him. So did thousands of Jews who were crucified by the Romans. They all had nails put in their wrists or their hands. They all had their feet nailed to the cross. They all had, were stripped of their clothing, hung there naked, humiliating. Can't kind of feel sorry for Jesus? Poor Jesus. They mistreated him. That's not Mark's purpose. It is terrible what they did to Jesus. But if the point of this is to make us feel sorry for Jesus, Mark could have gone into a lot of detail. Like they put him down on the ground and four soldiers are, are kneeling on him and they drive the nail in and he's wriggling like a worm on a hook. They could have gone into great detail, but they don't. All it says is they crucified him. Just matter of fact. Why? The focus is not the pain of the cross. The focus is the shame of the cross. That's what Mark is trying to communicate. That he bore our shame. He was not just killed. He was rejected and despised and ridiculed and humiliated by almost everyone. Let's finish reading what he says, 24 through 32. They crucified him. And they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. About nine o'clock in the morning, the inscription of the charge against him read on the top of the cross, the king of the Jews, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross." And also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. One after another, people turn against him. Judas, who he trusts with the finances, betrays him. Peter, one of his closest friends, denies knowing him. The other disciples scatter and desert him. The Jewish leaders not only condemn him, they slap him around, mock him. The soldiers play games with him. At the cross, he's stripped naked. there's no dignity left. The one who created these men in his own image, now they turn on him and try to destroy that image. And at the cross, people are passing by and they're not just saying, "Sucker." They're insulting him. You you know where it goes they drop the Hebrew equivalent of an F-bomb on him repeatedly. They wag their heads. People passing by scoff. You saved others. Can't even save yourself. Save yourself. Oh, you can't? You're a nobody. Spiritual leaders turned on him in every way. Was there ever a man so abandoned by his friends, so wrongly hated by his enemies, so unjustly ridiculed? Was there ever anybody who was treated less than they deserved? He should have been worshiped, should have had the medal of honor, should have won the, every Nobel Peace Prize. What did he do in his life? He never cheated anybody. He never lied to anybody. He was never motivated by lust or envy or pride or greed. What did he do? Cast demons out. Welcomed little children. Honored women. Made blind people able to see. Made lame people able to walk. Made the deaf able to hear. Gave children, dead children back to their parents. Raised them from the dead. And what had he done? deserved praise. Was there ever a man treated with as little dignity by people less than him? So what does all of this mean? What does this mean? Because Mark's point is the shame of the cross. Jesus can help us with our shame. Let me explain. There are two kinds of shame. There is shame that we should feel when we sin. And we live in a therapeutic society that says shame is, is bad and, and, and awful. The reality is when we do sin, we should feel shame, legitimate shame. And the second kind of shame is misplaced or illegitimate shame. It, it's the shame that, because you've done nothing wrong. You've not sinned. If you were abused, though you had no fault in it yourself, you kind of feel shame. Some of you had people make fun of make fun of your name and you kinda kinda of feel ashamed. Maybe your your family doesn't follow Christ and you're the only Christian and you kind of just feel ashamed by them and they shame you. You shame on you. Maybe the way you look, people ridicule you. We all know what it's like to feel shame. And Jesus can help us how, and I want to end with this, three different ways Jesus helps us with our shame. One, he forgives our sin and he died for our guilt. Our sin was on his shoulders and when we trust him, it cuts the nerve of shame because what we did has been forgiven and we confess it to him and he he, he forgives us Cuts the nerve of our shame. You ever have that feeling after you said, I, I looked at it, I looked at it again. I said it again. And, and we just, we, we feel shame. We feel humiliated. And Jesus carried that on the cross. Here's the second way He helps us by identifying with us. I mean, He identifies us and with us in our worst and in our weakest. When we feel shame, but when you feel shame because other kids pick on you, talking to the kids here, other kids pick on you, or you're at work and you're snobbed by someone in your department because you're a Christian or they just don't like you, or people smarter than you or richer than you kind of look down on you. People don't give you the respect you deserve. When you feel that. Remember that you worship and you follow someone who understands what that feels like. Because Hebrews 4, Hebrews 4, and uh, Andrew read it to us as we gathered for prayer just before the service started, Hebrews 4 says, he is a sympathetic high priest who understands everything we go through, including feeling shame, either for what we've done or what someone is doing to us. He can come alongside us and say, I know how you feel. And here's the third way, and I want to finish with it. He helps us know what to do with our shame. I've got two passages, two verses to, to read. Throw that first one up on the screen from Hebrews 12. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is before us. they are talking about the Christian race. Looking to Jesus, if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to... When the Christian race, you got to keep your eyes on Jesus, look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and it is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And that word despise means to consider it as of no account. To ignore it because it's not worthy of talking about. And that's what Jesus did with all the shame they were throwing at him. He just considered it of of no account, unworthy of notice. He looked at his shame and he considered it negligible, of no account. How do you do that? He counted it as nothing and he did it for the joy set before him. He knows that just on the other side of the shame, he's going to sit at the Father's right hand and glory like never before will be restored and augmented with him and he knows this is not the end of the story. This shame I feel right now is not the end of the story. It does not define me for the joy that is set before him. And one other passage to help us with our shame. Go ahead and put that one up from 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2 says, for what credit is it if when you sin, you're beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing to do in the sight of God. For For to this you have been called because... Jesus also, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's what you do when you're shamed. This is not the end of the story. There's joy on the other side of this, and I entrust myself, as Jesus did, to him who judges justly. Someday there's going to be a judgment, and it will be a just judgment. And sin will be punished either in hell forever or on the cross when we trust it in Christ. But for the joy, and because God is a a judge, I just... I consider this a no account because this is not the end of my story. This is not the end. That's how Jesus made it through. That's how we make it through when we're shamed or, or we feel shame. It was humiliation, then exaltation. The, this was not easy for Jesus, and it is not easy for us. The Christian life is not easy. It was hard for Jesus and it was it will be hard for us. This is what it means to walk the Calvary road. How would it change your faith? How would it change your Christian life if you really believed that because you follow Jesus, you're going to be ridiculed, you're going to be rejected, you're going to be laughed at, talked behind your back, you're going to be shamed? And you just knew that. And you, you steeled yourself. All right. That's what, it, that's what it means on the Calvary Road. That's what it means. I'm going to follow Jesus. And I know that's going to happen. How would that change your faith? Because on the other side, there's going to be joy. And uh, God will have his turn. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Lord, once again, I... I am just led we are led to trust your word that it would be so realistic and so honest with us. It shows how the closest followers like Peter denied him, who would have thought that up if it was just fiction, and you tell us what is coming and you go before us, and we look to you the the, the perfecter, the the beginner of our faith. Lord I know that some of my Some of us who are gathered here right now, just eh, living with shame. Help us to put that on your shoulders. Help us to count it as no account, do what we can to make things right. But Lord, help us to remember that we follow a savior who was humiliated and ridiculed for no fault of his own. And this, what we're going through right now, even with COVID and the chaos, this is not the end of the story. So we praise you and thank you for that. Help us to walk the Calvary Road, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.